what's cooking up in the kitchen? Am I smelling that soul food? Oh yes, it is soul food. The spiritual food for your spiritual nourishment. And you know what? This food will never expire. Never expire? I need this food every day. You are listening to these spiritual-based podcasts. There are many podcasts, but this one here is to satisfy your soul, to feed your spiritual hunger. Are you hungry for God? Don't let your soul be hungry. No matter where you are, whatever you are doing now, at work, home, or on the go, you can still listen here and right now the uh, Soul Food Podcast. Don't let ever your soul to go hungry. It's time for some Soul Food. The Lord now is asking you, why do you cry out to me? I'm not saying that Jesus is in this place because I am a pastor, a bishop, because I am here. No, I look at you and I say, God is in this place because I have seen him in my life. I have seen here lives being transformed you are not in a regular place you are in the house of God here God has opened a great door for you he's going to make a way out for you God will make a way even a road in the wilderness rivers in the dry land rivers in the desert this is our God you are now listening to Soul Food with Bishop Barra Joshua. I went right back in into the drug distribution, bringing in hundreds of kilograms of cocaine, millions of dollars, party life. As I opened up the window, the cops was there with their guns drawn. Freeze, you know, don't move. So I went back in my home and I looked at my wife and I told her, my life is over. And the preacher says, there's a gentleman here that has been chasing after things and those things have led him down a road of destruction. He says, the peace that God can give you will surpass all of your understanding. Continue to listen to Soul Food. We have a story coming up next to share with you.
there. You have many problems and many enemies surround your life. It seems like that you attract enemies to you. But I want you to read this message from God. What King David once said. He said, he delivered me from my strong enemy. For those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. Look here, please. David said, my enemies were too strong for me. But who is stronger than God? Tell me, please. Can I ask you a question? Who is above God? Who is stronger than God? They say that you cannot make it. They say that you are lost in life. But I ask you, hey, hey, look here. Listen to me for a while. Can you please stop? Listen to me. Who is stronger than God? He delivered me from my strong enemy. From those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. But you know what? They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. The Lord is your support. So wherever you are right now, watch me. God is your support. I am not talking about a church. I am not talking about a religion. I am talking about the Almighty God that is your support and He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. You can call this number. It is a toll-free number, 1-800. So wherever you may be watching us, in the West, outside the West, in any part of the world, you can right now give me a call. 1-888-332-4141. The same God who delivered King David from all his enemies, he delivers you from all your enemies. Now it's time to listen to a real life story here on Soul Food Podcast. I was raised in uh, Queens, New York. Uh, my parents are from the Dominican Republic, uh, and they arrived here in the early 60s with my two eldest brothers. Um, and so they wanted to extend their family, and they had three additional children. And I'm the youngest of five uh, boys. Uh, it was um, really challenging at home because five brothers, five boys, you could only imagine the competitiveness and one trying to try to find their identity within the household. Um, but I was the youngest, and so I was always taken care of and looked after. Um, and so growing up in New York City, such a diverse community in Queens, um, you know, at my earlier age, uh, about 11, 12, in the er early 80s and 90s, it was the trend of New York City with the hip-hop culture. Um, there was gangs surfacing in the area, and so I wanted to kind of fit in and be a part 
of that culture during the time. And so I got involved with some young people uh, in the community, which they were, you know, uh, local gang members. Uh, and I was introduced to marijuana at basically at 12 years of age. Wow. Um, once I tried marijuana, I tried to conceal it from my parents. I had two other siblings that were also sort of, you know, involved with, with me. And, um, and so we started to consume marijuana and alcohol. And that really caused a lot of problems because my parents were somewhat noticing of my behavior. Uh, they noticed that I was really changing in my attitude towards them and towards school. Uh, and so at the age of about 13, I decided to join fully into this gang in Queens, New York. And I remember I was hanging out in a park, uh, smoking weed, marijuana, and this two assailants, two uh, people entered the park and they approached us. And one of the guys took out a bat and almost hit me and tried to hit the gang leader. And he ran off. And as he ran off to the right, uh, I kind of, you know, stood up to sort of grab my posture to a fighting posture, right? And as I looked towards my right, uh, the person that was there, the assailant, he pulled out a, a firearm and shot my friend and, and said some words to him, said, look, next time you mess with me, I'm going to kill you. Wow. Uh, so when they left the park, I approached him. I didn't see any blood and I picked up his shirt. And apparently it seemed that he had internal bleeding and he eventually passed on. You know, it was, I thought that was, was going to shake my core, right? It was going to change my behavior, uh, but it didn't. I continued to, you know, be involved in, in this gang um, and consume drugs and smoke weed. And then eventually that led me to use cocaine. Now in the early eighties, cocaine was being used in the streets. It was was sort of like a fad. People wanted to be a part of the Hollywood culture and people were using cocaine. And um, I tried it. And when I tried cocaine, I was totally hooked to the drug. And there were some local dealers in the neighborhood. And I had approached them and said, look, you know, I can sell some drugs. Uh, I'm young. I, what are they going to do to me? You know, the cops. So I started to sell small quantities of cocaine wow. uh, in this particular neighborhood of, of Queens. And it was all to sustain the habit, um, to use the, the drugs. And that eventually led to me using heroin. Um, How old were you then? I was about uh, 13 and a half. Wow. When I started using heroin. Um, and then at, at that time, you know, I was just really strung out using cocaine and heroin. Did your parents notice any difference? As, I mean, as... they, they noticed my behavior that I was, yeah. you know, coming home you know, drugged out, but they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to interact with me. They didn't know how to address the situation oh. being, you know, from, from uh, Dominican Republic immigrants. So they didn't know how to deal with the current situation that they were dealing with their son. So I remember one day I was hanging out with some guys and I said, look, let's do some, you know, let's do a robbery. And we committed a robbery and I was arrested and I was sent up to juvenile detention center in Queens in, in the Bronx. And there, um, I, they sentenced me to close to a year in prison. And so when I was released, my parents said, enough is enough. They concocted a plan to send me to the Dominican Republic, thinking that would change my behavior and my character. And they sent me off to my grandparents' home. And so when I arrived there, you know, I'm in the Dominican Republic, trying to kind of fit in uh, to the kids there and try to find my place 
in this island and this community I was living in. And so they uh, registered me to a private school. And I, as I was there, I was trying to, you know, fit in with the local kids. And I, I just didn't feel comfortable. Uh, my Spanish wasn't 100% at the time, even though my first language was Spanish. And I just wanted out. I didn't want to be a part of this school. And so the, I remember not going to school. They had strict regulations at this particular uh, school. And I was expelled. And so my grandparents said, you know, this kid is just a tough kid. So I know what I'm going to do with him. I'm going to take him out onto the fields. They owned some land. Uh, my grandfather was in the agriculture business. And he said, I'm going to show him a lesson. I'm going to give him hard labor. And he, take, he took me to this field, passed me a machete and said, you're going to work the fields with me. And he owned, um, you know, he was uh, harvesting rice and plantains and and other uh, vegetables, and, and he put me to do hard labor. And I was like, I, I wasn't called to do this. Like, what is going on? So I, I did that for a while. And, you know, unfortunately, in the Dominican Republic, alcohol is readily available to young people. And I started to consume alcohol and drink, you know, arrive home drunk. And my grandfather, he was just upset with me. He's like, I don't know what to do with this kid. So he contacted my mom and he said, we need to send them back to New York because he's just creating havoc here. He's a nuisance and we're just tired of his behavior. And so they contacted my mom and my mom said, okay, you know, I don't know what to do with this boy. During my time there in the Dominican Republic, I had met soon to be wife, you know, uh, Alexandria through a friend of mine that was living in the Dominican Republic at the time. And so we just became friends and uh, they sent me off to New York. And I was back in New York City, you know, going to high school and the first semester of high school, I ran into Alexandra. And so we started to talk and then we started to date and um, we became close. And I just, you know, at the time, I was still sort of thinking, you know, do I continue to behave the way I was behaving, you know, getting involved in gangs or do I get really serious with my girlfriend? And so I decided to get serious with my girlfriend and right out of high school, um, we got married. My parents were like, what are you doing? You got to go to college, you know? And I was like, I'm in love. Latinos, we get married early. I got married um, and I was, you know, living with her. And my second eldest brother and my fourth eldest brother were involved in this cartel out of Colombia. And they were distributing cocaine to the United States. And uh, I didn't want no part of it because I knew that, you know, drugs had affected me as a teenager. And um, I figured, you know, I don't want no part of what they're doing, distributing hundreds and hundreds of kilograms of cocaine. They had luxury cars, expensive homes, but I just didn't want no part of it because I knew that it affected me as a young person. You know, I was addicted to drugs. And I remember uh, one day being laid off from work and I contacted my fourth eldest brother and I said, look, I need money. And I said, I don't want to sell drugs, but I need to get involved in your uh, business dealings. And so he invited me to the stash house. It has some security measures in place. And so when I got there, the first thing that I witnessed was a Mac 10 on the table. Uh, they had the TV blasted to muffle the sound of the counting machines. And towards my right, there was hundreds and hundreds of dollar bills, uh, different denominations and fifties and twenties. And he said to me, I want you to count the money. 
and let me know how much money is there. And so I counted this money. There was $1.2 million in cash. And so the TV was blasted to muffle that sound of those counting machines as I was counting the money. And it seemed surreal, you know, that I'm over here counting. I'm involved in this drug enterprise and I'm counting $1.2 million. And I'm only like 20 years old. Wow. He rewards me by giving me thousands of dollars. And I was like, wow, this is an easy in. So I started to immerse myself further into the enterprise. And now I was not just counting the money. I was distributing the cocaine. I was organizing drug uh, stops and runs with the organization and millions of dollars passing through my hands. So I started now to get involved fully into the operation. And I thought I was on top of the world, having all this money, party life in clubs, hanging out with celebrities, going to their mansions, uh, thinking that, you know, this is the life. You know, I have all this gain, I have all these riches, you know, I'm living the life. One day, I was in my car, my brother said, look, we gotta make this run, we gotta drop off this narcotics to this client in Manhattan in front of this luxury hotel. And so we usually don't make those runs. We have our workers take the drugs and we usually have in our vehicles what we call in Spanish caletas. They're uh, compartments in the vehicles, they're called traps, where we have kilograms uh, housed in those areas. And so that day we decided to take the drugs ourselves because my brother wanted to meet this particular client. So as I was driving, there was uh, uh, TNT officers that were pursuing us. I had no idea, but when I looked back, I noticed that someone was following us. And so I sped away and got close to the Queensboro Bridge, which separates Queens and Manhattan. And all of a sudden, as I stop at the traffic light, I see a patrol car approaching our car and a number of other cars behind us. We usually have, when we do these runs, we have someone in another vehicle driving just in case that anyone pursues us, that that other worker of ours would crash into the police car and that we can get away from the cops. Wow. That only happens in Hollywood. It didn't happen in our case. The cops surrounded our vehicle. They arrested us. They hauled me to, to the local uh, precinct. And I remember I was in the, in the precinct thinking, man, I'm caught now with 25 kilograms of cocaine in the trunk of my vehicle. Now they know our stash house. They went there and they seized an additional six kilograms of cocaine wow. inside a Mercedes-Benz 600. And I'm in this prison and the very first reaction was, I need to get out of jail. I wasn't thinking about the wrongs I did, that I, I'm hurting society, you know, spewing narcotics out into the communities. I was just thinking about self. I wanted to get out of jail. So I contacted my attorneys. We had attorneys in place. And I said, listen, do the best that you can. We need to get out. And the very next day I pick up the newspaper and what was blasted across that particular newspaper read $3.8 million seized of cocaine. Two brothers incarcerated facing life in prison, no bail. At the time, Mayor Giuliani uh, was the mayor of the city of New York, and he wanted to crack down on drug traffickers and drug dealers. And the prosecutor was Richard Brown, and I was faced with life in prison, not knowing what to do, you know, trying to figure things out. At that moment, the attorneys come back and say, look, we're gonna work out a plea. You have no bail, but we're gonna work out a plea. 
They're going to give you three to nine years of incarceration and your brother four to 12 years. Now, I was housed in the notorious jail called Rikers Island, where at that time and still today, there's thousands of people incarcerated, over 14,000. And I'm housed in this prison trying to, you know, again, figure things out. And the day came of my sentencing. I got three to nine years of incarceration, my brother four to 12. So they send us out to state prison. And in state prison, there was an opportunity that arose that whether I can either sign into a program, which was a military camp, my sentence would be reduced almost in half. And I had already in about a year and a half incarcerated. And so I, I, I seized the opportunity and said, okay, I'm gonna sign to this program, which I did. And they sent me off to a program called Shock, which is basically to rehabilitate young people or people that are um, you know, consuming drugs or involved in drugs. And it was just a deal that the uh, attorneys worked out with the prosecutor. And I figured I'm gonna sign into this program because I'm gonna you know, get out only in, in six months. As I arrived to this facility, the very first thing that would happen to me was that I had ex-Marines on my face saying, get in parade rest, give me a hundred pushups. I'm like, what in the world is going on? What is this? And as I was there to try to fit into the regimen and the program that was registered for these inmates to apply, if they don't finish it, they go back to state prison and do their time. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go to the chapel. Again, I, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I had a form of godliness, but denying its power. So I knew a little bit about Christianity, but I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ at the time. And I went to this chapel and I wanted to negotiate with God. And so as I went there, I said, God, if you allow me to pass this program, because I don't want to go back to state prison and finish my time, I got to do three to nine years of incarceration. But if you allow me to finish this program, I promise you, I'm not going to drink alcohol for six months. It was ignorance on my part and stupidity. Instead of saying, God changed my life. Look what I've done. I'm destroying communities. I'm destroying lives. But it wasn't like that. I wanted to negotiate with God. And I finished the program. And upon my release, I was out in society. I'm out on parole. And the first thing I wanted to do after I completed those six months is to go have a drink. So I went to a bar to celebrate the end of my sobriety, the end of me consuming alcohol. And, and as I was there, how the enemy sets us up, I run into an old associate, wow. an old person that I had drug runs with. And he said, listen, I am controlling now over a ton of cocaine. If you want in, you let me know. And as I was hanging out with a, old, uh, with a buddy of mine, having a drink and and kind of thinking of what he was saying, I, my mind was racing, thinking, man, I can make hundreds of millions of dollars. I could be on top of the world again, on top of the game. I know now how the police operates. I can have more control over the distribution of cocaine, which I was selling throughout the Eastern Seaboard. I was like, I can do this. I can make this happen. But my heart was saying, don't do it. So I, I go back to in the, in the bars, I was drinking, and I go back to this individual, this Colombian individual, and I tell him, I'm in. I want to take now, give me 11 kilograms of cocaine. So I send my employee to get the drugs. 
And it reminds me of the scriptures in Proverbs 26, 11, where it says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so do fools repeat their folly. Wow. I went right back in into the drug distribution, controlling different locations of distribution points, bringing in hundreds of kilograms of cocaine, millions of dollars, party life, you know, spending tens of thousands of dollars. And my second eldest brother had another case going on, pending case, and he got busted in Miami and they extradited him to New York. And when I found out about his extradition, he was in New York, we bailed him out on a half a million dollars. And as, I, as he got out of jail, he said, what are you doing? I said, man, I'm back in. I'm controlling hundreds of kilograms of cocaine. He's like, great, I wanna partner up with you. And so he partnered up with me and he had a client that was working, uh, he had a, a trucking company where he would distribute cocaine from Miami to New York and from California to New York. And so we use this service to house the drugs there, you know, thousands of kilograms, hundreds of kilograms of cocaine. Unbeknownst to us, he was working with the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency. He was negotiating with us. We were giving him drugs to pick up. And all along, he was recording all of our conversations. And also he had drugs that we were giving him. As time went on, we were being investigated by the Drug Enforcement Agency, by the uh, federal government. So my brother and I were living this life, drink, you know, drinking, partying, and then one day, cops surrounded our vehicles and they arrested us and they sent us to a prison in Manhattan called Metropolitan Correctional Facility, uh, Metropolitan Correctional Center, where the uh, notorious drug lord, El Chapo, was housed. Stay tuned next week, Monday, to hear the rest of this real-life story of Herman. Don't miss it because he has more to share. Keep your notifications on and make sure to share with others. listening in that's all the soul food we have to share today stay tuned for the next episode on soul food and keep your notifications on share this episode with your friends and family to feed their souls give the food that lasts forever mm-hmm.